Thank you for listening to the podcast of Antioch Church, a Christian community in Bend, Oregon, being formed by the story of a God who is making all things new, including us. You can learn more at antiochchurch.org. Thanks for listening. Hey, good morning, friends. Uh, my name is Jerry Swigart, and I'm not one of the pastors here. Uh, I, I, like you, am a part of the family, and, uh, and hopefully, like you, believe that because of the death and resurrection of Jesus, there's a revolution at foot, and that we can be a part of it if we want to. And so that's why I come into this place, or virtually, uh, every single week, because I need to remember that there's a revolution at foot, and we can be a part of it if we want to. Um, I, I'm, this morning, uh, somebody said to me, you know, it, it's interesting. It feels, it, it seems like you always preach after tragedy strikes. And, um, and I don't know, I don't know if that's a coincidence or if there's just an uptick in catastrophe, you know? And, um, but what, what I know is that I, I'm sick of preaching after catastrophes. And, um, and my prayer this morning is that the word that I preach and that the word that preachers all around the world preach is a reminder that there is a revolution afoot, that it's not marked by anemic worship, but by sacrificial followership. Um, and that it's not just like Jesus is going to snap his divine fingers and all the brokenness is going to go away, but we've actually been invited to be a part of the change in the world. Um, and so, like, this is the fuel and the burden and the, uh, and the, the grief that I carry um, up into this moment here this morning. Um, but with the hope that I carry as well, that we together can usher in a world that God is making, and it's a, wor- it's a world that's free from catastrophe, um, and so, um, a word on revolution, because revelation is a, is a letter on revolution. And we've been in this letter for, uh, for seven weeks now. And um, for, if, if you've been a part of us all seven weeks, or if this is your first time with us, let me, let me just bring us up to speed on how we as a family have been approaching this declaration of revolution um, and then we'll, we'll finish the Bible uh, together here uh, shortly. The, here's, here's what this letter, rich in imagery, was intended to do. Um, it was intended to generate hope within communities of Jesus' followers that were spread all throughout the Roman Empire. It was a letter intended to offer a critique of the empire and its values that innovate and sustain injustice. It's a call to Jesus communities all throughout the empire to defy any and every system that seeks to diminish the imago Dei in anyone. It intends to challenge these Jesus communities toward creative, costly love from within the injustice. It's to remind them that in Christ, God defeated and will ultimately bring an end to darkness. The letter is a declaration to them that Jesus is coming back. And it's an invitation of them to join God as Jesus' tangible presence in the remaking of the world, not through allegiance to an alignment with political power, but through organized self-sacrifice. 
There's the book of Revelation for us, friends. Have you ever encountered the book quite like this? It it quite truly, rather than being a collection of esoteric ideas and theories about how the world is going to end, it is a declaration of revolution, of overthrow, not with violence, but through self-sacrifice. And this morning, as I've been reading Revelation 22, I'm struck with a sense of urgency that this book, that this letter has to offer us. And I don't know how, how you read uh, Revelation 22 and just the, 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 the repetition of Jesus saying, I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. But then John's final prayer saying, come, Lord Jesus, come. I don't read that as like a, a wishful thinking, like I'm going to wait by and hope that eventually Jesus comes back. I sense urgency, desperation, even some despair seasoned with hope in that prayer, come Lord Jesus, come. And I want, to, I want to comment on why, two reasons. One, repetition. In the gospels over and over again, we hear Jesus say, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. The world is gonna be crazy and I'm coming back. Four times I read it in, in Revelation 22, the repetition of I'm coming back, I'm coming back, I'm coming back. Luke chapter 12, Jesus says, I'm coming back and even I don't know the hour when. Luke 17, Jesus says, when I come back, it's going to be as obvious as lightning in in the night sky. Luke 21, Jesus says that when suffering increases because of the systemic exploitation of the planet and its people, that will be a sign to you that the time is coming near for me to come back. Repetition, this letter is written to a group of people who believes that the return of Jesus is imminent and he hasn't made good on his promise yet. So there's a sense of urgency behind this prayer. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Do what you said you're gonna do. Do it today, right? So there's some urgency there. But the second reason for the urgency that I'm reading into Revelation 22 is connected to suffering, This letter was written to community, to Jesus communities who were seeking to follow Jesus within the Roman Empire where it was potentially lethal to do so. Like, this Jesus way was the hopeful alternative to Caesar's way of life. It was a way marked by sacrificial love, by radical hospitality, by boundaryless solidarity, and by a declaration that carried a death sentence, that declaration being, Jesus is Lord. And so for following Jesus, there was a high likelihood that you would suffer significantly. And so this come, Lord Jesus, is also rooted in pain. It's rooted in suffering. And, and it makes me wonder, like, do we who have been socialized into a Western form of Christianity, do we understand the level of urgency with which this these communities of Jesus followers would have heard this. I've been wrestling this week with Revelation as a whole and this particular passage. Because Revelation wasn't written to participants of a civil religion who benefit from the status quo. This letter was written by a prisoner serving a death sentence on a wind-whipped island in the middle of the sea a prisoner serving a death sentence because he dared to follow Jesus. 
And it was, it was written to communities, not in the epicenter of power, sitting on the thrones of empire. This letter was written to Jesus communities who were exploited and occupied people who were just simply trying to figure out, how do I follow Jesus from under the boot of empire? Revelation was a book written to a suffering people. It was written to a people who were desperate for Jesus to make good on his promise for return, but it was also written to a community of people who refused to wait for Jesus to come back in order to remake the world. This was a group of people who were seeking to embody the mission of reconciliation in a time and a place where it was potentially lethal to do so. So when John prays on behalf of the people, come, Lord Jesus, come, there's an urgency and a desperation and a despair laced in that anthem that I struggle to understand. So I'm wondering, can we read, come, Lord Jesus, and understand it like that original community could? Did it mean something different to them than it does to us? I feel like I, um, I discovered a more vivid understanding of this text this week. Um, I, my work is with an organization called Global Immersion, and we form everyday peacemakers and reconciling leaders to join God in repair. And the, the work takes us into war zones, whether that's battlefields or boardrooms. And when we're there, we're working with cross-sector faith-formed leaders who are trying to break agreement with theology that leads to dominance through violence. Instead, they're trying to embrace a more restorative theology so that they can deploy their leadership in ways that actually cause repair in this world. And through a random series of unique relationships that span decades, that, um, recently I was invited into a relationship with two leaders that fit that description. But this time they were formidable leaders from within the civil war in Myanmar. Or I, I think it could be more aptly described as a 73 years long genocide of ethnic minorities. One of those ethnic minorities is the Kenya people, and currently there are three million Kenya in the global diaspora refugee community. Hundreds of thousands of them internally displaced within their homeland. Story after story of lives prematurely extinguished from air raids and village burnings and landmines, uh, mass executions. And th this week, um, these two leaders and I met up in Minnesota, of all places. And we got together in a cabin way up north. And um, over the course of three days, I heard them talk about the reality of violence that they have experienced and that their people have experienced, that their fathers have experienced and their grandmothers have experienced. I listened to them share of the risks that they regularly take to get supplies to people who are desperate for them, like, like baby formula to traumatized mothers who do not have it within their bodies to, fit, to feed their malnourished infants, like teachers who are trying desperately to utilize any tool they can get their hand on to help the next generation of Kenya dream again or like subsistence farmers trying to get them lightweight tools because they are perpetually on the run. 
I listened to them grieve lopsided violence and I heard despair and desperation and urgency. But these two gentlemen are also followers of Jesus. So their despair was seasoned with a little bit of hope. In a moment of deepest despair, one of the generals, he leans back in his chair and he takes a long drag from his cigarette and he closes his eyes and with a smoky exhale, he says, come Lord Jesus. And it got my attention because I'm like, hey man, I'm, I'm preaching on that this Sunday. And when the time was right, I, I asked him to help me understand that prayer. Because I'm not sure that I do. And here's what he said. These are his exact words. He said, I believe Jesus will return. I'm desperate for that day, but I cannot wait for that day. For if I wait, too many will die. Here is a follower of Jesus who understands that following Jesus means joining Jesus in the work of undoing the violence that seeks to exterminate his people. And as he gives his life to that revolution, the anthem, come Lord Jesus, is on his lips. Come Lord Jesus. I went back to my room after that conversation because I, I needed to sort some things out. Um, and, and when I got to my room, I opened up my computer, and the first thing that I see is the unfolding tragedy in Uvalde, Texas. And so I, I just began to write, not to write a sermon, but just to reflect on how it is that I'm trying to understand the relevance of Revelation 22 for a time and place for us who are a part of a revolution and trying to figure out how, what it means, how do we participate in the undoing of violence? And if it'd be okay, I wanna share some of what I wrote just as a, in an effort to help us wrestle from a Western understanding of Revelation 22, maybe into a more marginalized understanding of what's actually going on here. Here's what I wrote. Privilege and dumb luck mean that few of us have experienced life under occupation, oppression, or exploitation. Don't get me wrong, many of us have experienced pain, hardship, loss, and even some injustice, but few of us have lived under the oppressive occupation of empire. Generally speaking, the systems and structures of the world that we currently reside within are designed to benefit people who look like me. Compared to the majority world, most of us have existed our entire lives comfortably perched within seats of influence, abundance, and opportunity. I wonder if our VIP seating has limited our experience of suffering and understanding of desperation. With the exception of some very real moments of pain and loss, life is pretty good. For many of us, 
if the status quo sustains, we'll be all right. If the status quo sustains, we'll be all right. We'll live a good life, be well-connected, do some good, make some great memories, bank some resources, and then according to our convenient interpretations, we'll go be with Jesus when we die. And then occasionally we deploy the mantra, come Lord Jesus, when tragedy strikes, like in Buffalo two weeks ago, and in Uvalde this last week, and in another school, church, grocery store, movie theater, in a town near us next week. It sounds less like a desperate appeal from within the pain and more a thin acknowledgement that something is violently broken and we feel powerless to do anything about it. It's too big. It's too complicated. It's too impacted. I'm too small, too insignificant. I'm undertrained. I'm underqualified. I wonder if come Lord Jesus has become reduced to an infrequent prayer through which we absolve ourselves from doing anything about the pain. Surely Jesus is the only one that can fix this. I want to suggest that the prayer, come Lord Jesus, read through the lenses of power and privilege has generated anemic worship rather than sacrificial followership. Anemic worship rather than sacrificial followership. So how, Antioch, do we continue in our journey from anemic worship to sacrificial followership? Because among many things wrong with that, chief among them is that Jesus never invited us to worship him, only ever to follow him by joining him practically in remaking the world. Matthew chapter 14, um, Jesus has just found out that his cousin, John the baptizer, has been beheaded, and he's sad, he's broken, he's grieving. And in Matthew 14, it, it tells that Jesus wants to get away to a desolate place, and he wants to be with his closest people that's very natural. It's very human. It's what we all want to do. But the, the problem was when he got to that desolate place, it was packed with people, thousands of them, who wanted to receive from Jesus. And so in his grief, Jesus is, is fully capable of meeting the substantial human need in front of him. And he gets into restorative action because there's a revolution afoot where broken things are being fixed. And so Jesus, we read in Matthew 14, is engaging in this. Meanwhile, the Jesus community is standing idly by watching Jesus do what Jesus does. They're not engaged in the revolution. They're observing it. And the thing that catalyzes them into motion is not a desire to be a part of the revolution. It's low blood sugar. They're hungry. And they imagine that the rest of the people are hungry too. And it might be seasoned with a little bit of concern for their leader who's probably grieving. And so the Jesus community moves closer to Jesus and says, hey, you know what? Like, it's late. You're sad. We're hungry, so are they. Let's send them away to the nearby village where they can feed themselves. And Jesus, uh, patient response, says, 
You feed them. Now, is he serious or is he sarcastic in this moment? I want to argue based on the larger context that he was dead serious. Why? Because in Matthew chapter 10, Jesus had anointed these people. He had given them authority and he had commissioned them into the revolution. He said, no, I'm commissioning you as liberators and agents of transformation and restoration and reconciliation. I'm sending you out to do the things that you have seen me do practically, physically. You're going to go and do these things now. And we don't really get much of a read on what happens in that space. But shortly thereafter, they're back in the space together. And these people who have been anointed with authority and commissioned into the revolution are now standing by bewildered by the enormity of the pain, of the need. Not engaged in the revolution, standing by hoping that Jesus does what Jesus does. And Jesus looks at him and goes, you do it. Become the answer to the prayer. Go. And they're like, yeah, but I'm like so radically ill-equipped. The things like, these things are insignificant. Like we don't have the funds. And Jesus goes, give me what's in your hands. Give me everything that you've got. Give me everything that you have that's already in, the, in your hands because I'm going to use that to do extraordinary things. I'm going to take the things that are already in your hands and I'm going to enact a supernatural collaboration to actually meet the need. So give me everything. Jesus didn't snap Jesus' fingers and magically there was food for people. Jesus took the things, insignificant as they were, that were already in their hands and used them to actually do a thing. I wonder, Antioch, are we aware of what's in our hands? Do you believe that you have been anointed with authority, Antioch? Do you believe that you have been commissioned into the revolution? Do you understand that the tools that are already in your hands are the tools of the revolution that Jesus is actually going to use in a supernatural collaboration to actually fix the broken things that are overwhelming all around us? I remember um, having a similar conversation with my church in the Bay Area years and years ago. I think we were actually exploring Exodus 3 where Moses is at the burning bush having this radical encounter with God and God's like, hey, I hear the cries of my people because they are practically, tangibly in the chains of slavery. I hear their cries. Now I read Exodus 3 and I'm like, Jesus, they were probably, or God, they were probably crying for like 400 years. Thank you for finally listening. But I hear their cries. I see their oppression. I'm about to come down and do a thing about it. And Moses, I'm inviting you to join me with your body and with your tools to actually be a part of liberation. God is not going to snap God's fingers and everything is going to go away. God invites us into the revolution and then deploys the things that are already in our hands. But Moses is sitting there and he's like, yeah, I don't talk good. And like when I get in front of Pharaoh... The, most, the strongest, most powerful person on the planet, maybe a demigod, we're not sure which. Like when I get in front of him, like what should I do? And God goes, what's in your hand? And Moses goes, a shepherd's staff, sweat stained, weather worn. And God goes, yeah, I'm gonna use that. The tool that is already comfortable in your hand, I'm gonna use that. And there's gonna be a supernatural collaboration that's gonna lead to liberation. 
right? So, somebody's awake. Thanks be to God, I'm working so hard up here. So this guy comes up to me afterward, and his name's Brad, and he goes, hey, Jer, I'm a sous chef. And I'm like, yeah. And he's like, I got a spatula in my hand. How could God use that? I'm like, let's dance. So we began to dream. We, get, we, we began to talk. And this thing emerged for him. He's like, well, what if, what if I actually, like, I believe people can cook. And I believe that the table is the most important piece of furniture in the kingdom of God. And, and like, what if, what if I invited folk to invite their folk around a table where I could teach them that they can make really delicious food? Like, what if, what if it, like, I showed up in a kitchen and, like, I teach them how to do this thing and then we did it together and friends are connecting with friends along the way and then we make it and then we sit down for a couple of hours over that food and some wine and we hang together. And then what if I actually challenged people at the end of that meal to take the recipe and their know-how now into their own neighborhoods to invite people into their spaces and to do something similar to this? What if we did that? And that's what we did. And we called it Bratatouille. Uh, and, um, and, and Brad's like, with one stipulation, this isn't just for church people. I want to use this as a part of hospitality, of raising our capacity for hospitality. Right? And so we did it once a month and there were like 20 people and like only 10 of them could, could, could come from open door because we all had to invite another person to get in the room. And then that began to morph into an approach for how we as a community could actually meet the food needs of the under-resourced as a part of our family. And we began to work and build teams and deploy teams of people to ensure that people who were under-resourced not only had access to delicious and fresh food, but they knew how to prepare it as well. So all of a sudden, that began to trickle all throughout our, our community beyond the open-door community and f in, into the larger community. And then he just recently spent uh, like a three-year tenure at a cafe in San Francisco called the Old School Cafe that is intentionally designed to give uh, under-resourced and at-risk youth training in the food industry. So a decade, for a decade, a sous chef has been using his spatula to be a part of mending broken things, bringing people together, training folks in hospitality. And in all of that, the extravagance of God's love is like a virus that begins to overtake people's lives. What's in your hand? Drumsticks, a guitar, a pencil, a pen, a mouse, a hammer. What's in your hand? It's already there. You don't need new tools for the revolution. A piano, it's in your hands already, right? So like there are tools that are already here and God's like, yeah, 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 that thing. You don't need to go get more stuff. That thing that's in your hand, I'm gonna deploy it as a tool of the revolution to fix broken things around us. So now in light of this week and my experience with the general and all the things that have been going on, I'm reading Revelation 22 differently. I don't see it as an escape hatch, whimsical prayer for Jesus to snap his fingers and magically fix things. I hear, I hear John saying, hey, Jesus, while we're waiting for you to return, 
I want to follow you with urgency into the pain. I want to deploy what's already in my hands for the sake of a supernatural collaboration that fixes broken things. And as I'm following you, deploying what's already in my hands, let the anthem of my soul and on my lips become Lord Jesus. Come. Amen.